Alex has some sort of call center action today. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, what's up with that? What are those? Oh, it's a it's a gaming headset. I have uh, some stuff at the other place now, and and I'm, I haven't really figured out what should be where yet. So I'm trying this out. All right. Gamers are better lovers. Love gamers. Oh, I don't know if that's true, but uh, I'll take it. You you starting off that you're being very positive and complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get started? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should, yes. Where are you, Brian? I'm in Miami. Are you there all winter now? I mean, I'm coming back to New York for a week. I won't see you as much. We don't see each other in New York ever anyway. Right, but you know what? I do want to go to the football game Just, next just knowing time. that I'm clo- close by, I'm sure helps. But I want to try to get down for the, the Bills game next week. Dolphins, Bills, Dolphins. Oh, 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 against, oh, yeah, yeah, come on down. The, re- the wheels have really fallen off that Eagles squad. Goo! Yeah, they're done. They're cooked. Only the delusional still hold out any ray of hope. I was shocked to see them defeated by the Cardinals. That's Are we turning this into some sort of poor man's ringer or something? What's going on? It was embarrassing. <laughs> I actually listened to a good Bill Simmons segment from Screen Time, the Bloomberg conference, talking about the podcast business. I actually like when he's talking about the business side of, of what he does. It's always he's interesting a, to me. He's the goat. He's great. He definitely he admits that he's like kind of mailing it in at this point because he's gotten to the age. He's been doing it too long. Anyway, it's a new year. I thought we'd start off by talking a little bit about optimism. We've been it's been a recurring theme. This like swing between optimism and pessimism. I think New Year is actually the the perfect holiday to some degree because everyone, all cultures, sort of celebrate it for the most part. Some have different calendars. And it's not aligned with any sort of one religion or creed or sect or anything like that. And everyone just agrees that, hey, it's a new year and things can get better and whatnot. So I, I wanted to start there and then maybe we'll work in some pessimism. If that sounds good. One of the things I think that's interesting is that we're starting this new year. The soft landing somehow arrived. I went back and listened to the podcast that we did at the end of 2022. And we were just like talking about how it was almost a foregone conclusion that we were heading into an economic recession. But we didn't. The stock market's up. Even my crypto portfolio is up. The American economy has never been better. And it's kind of broadly distributed, too. And I think that's an interesting thing. Like Americans under 35 increased their median net worth by 142% between 2019 and 2022. Yet, at the same time, I don't know, there's this feeling that we're in this, this age of pessimists. What's going on here? Why is there that? Blame it on Taylor Lorenz. I'm not going to blame it on Taylor. For those who don't know, Taylor is an internet culture reporter for the Washington Post and a lightning rod for the the people on Twitter who who hate ESG and DEI and various other things. Yeah, she's the the AOC of the internet. She's carved out a niche. I always said to, to people on my team that in some ways, like I really admired how deep she went in her, not in some ways, in many ways, in her field. Like the field of creators, influencers was never taken seriously. And 
she did. And she really went narrow and deep in this area. So kudos to her. Her and Ryan Broderick, Garbage Day. Who's yeah, also, he's great too. He's, he's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he goes. He's also places. a screaming liberal, but he's. Scream. <laughs> is this the new year you? Is this you're going to become more saxian? No, I just. His penetration of the kind of deepest layers of of the internet is admirable and he's a good writer and he turns out content like no one's business, but you know, he's of that, of that generation and ilk. Yeah. So give me the case for, for optimism as we're heading into the new year trip. I tell my kids this, I remember 13% mortgage rates and 8% unemployment. So the underlying kind of fundamentals of record low unemployment and, and, what seems to be tamed inflation leading to more modest interest rates, which are obviously make everything, including home ownership, more affordable, are reasons for optimism. Not to mention, now this one is probably more fraught, but like the unbelievable potential sitting, you know, just kind of within reach in terms of technological breakthroughs on the horizon. And all of that, I think, comes with lots of complexity because it's challenging everything about how we live, how we work, and to whom the spoils go to, and what the role of media is, and all of that. So there's there's tons and tons of uncertainty, which generally, I, I would say, is anxiety creating. But you know, there's I think there's lots of reasons to be optimistic because we've never been more powerful as a species, right? Like we've never lived better. By any measure, but mm-hmm. on the other, you know, on the other hand, people aren't having babies, and there's still very, you know, a huge amount of of hardship, particularly in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe. And the media makes everything much more visible than ever, right? So there, there's a feeling that things are really bad, but historically they're incredibly good, right? Mm-hmm. But if you talk to young people, I know, it's, it's a small sample, but I don't think people are disagreeing with the numbers that they're seeing. There's just a malaise that comes from, you know, the election coming up, people that feel like we are a heartbeat away from fascism. That kind of ruins your day, right? The new technology stuff, people N- not say, if yeah, you're Not if you're a fascist. True, if you're a fascist. It's a great time to be a fascist. But then you're, you're a heartbeat away from the other thing happening. So, you know, whatever you are, you're kind of teetering on, on the thing happening you don't want to. Even though people are generally excited by technology revolution, there's also all this talk about it, potentially it being world-ending, and the environment is, is a big deal. And so I think on top of that, you know, post-pandemic, for everyone who kind of grew up in a zero-interest-rate world, that change was pretty harsh. You know, somebody ripped the Band-Aid and all of a sudden, you know, you couldn't buy cars easily or things felt really out of reach. So it's very much a vibe, right, of oof, some, some shoe's going to drop. Some shoe's going to drop like the pandemic or some sort of election goes wrong or a new war. And I hear everything's good and actually I'm not doing too badly, but shit, like there's something around the corner. I just know it. And I think it's just generalized anxiety mm-hmm. across the population rather than an actual feeling of, what's happening right now, you know? What, what do you think the role of, of media and technology is in fueling that, right? Because we've never been more connected. We've never had more information at our fingertips. And I can't get around the fact that 
I really think news has become like menthol cigarettes. I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and is like, you know, I wish I had a couple more menthols last night. And Oh, 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 I do. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, it was a big miss. Not coffee nearly enough. And news in some ways is kind of stuck in that. And I think, you know, part of that is a just a feature of the news. And this is not, this is not new. I was listening to this. Have you ever listened to the podcast Hidden Brain? Mm-hmm. It's really good. I hope to have the guy on my own podcast. It's one of those podcasts with the pauses that makes yeah. it sound very much like a NPR podcast or PBS or NPR. There's a there's a yeah. there's a quality to yeah. these. That, John Carr does a nice job with that. Rhythm, I like yeah. it. It's very soothing. He has a very soothing voice. Mm-hmm. I went back and he did, he did this episode. Actually, no, this is different than Henry. What I'm saying. It was about like Thoreau. And Thoreau was complaining about the same thing. And this is what he went to Walden to get away from. He's like, this, we got the telegraph. Now we've got this news coming at us everywhere. And the news is all about the what. It's not about the why. And it's, it's stuff you can't even control. And so it is actually learned helplessness in that you don't actually do anything, right, to quote unquote change any of these quote unquote problems that are around. And yes, there are real problems obviously around. But instead, because we're surrounded by it, particularly in the information space, we just emote and we argue about words, like, because we can't affect the changes. So I, to me, I don't know how, you know, news as a product becomes more attractive when it, it is sort of by default exacerbating tensions and anxieties. I think I'm not being optimistic. Is that different to the way news used to be or... I mean, it's definitely become more polarized, and you see, is you see even polarization even in in things that didn't really need polarization, right? Like Kara Swisher, her tone and rhetoric is feels so anti-tech all of a sudden. She kind of pitched her book as like "Burn, Burn, Baby, Burn" about the tech scene, and so I think even every topic you read on, you you I have to either choose like a pro or against stance on something. There's no, there's not a ton of middle down, you know, down the road, just talking about the thing anymore, even in tech, even in gaming, even in sports, it all seems very confrontational, right? Is that yeah. a, Alex, a capturing audience? Alex, s- sports is designed to be confrontational. No, sure. I get that. I get that. I mean, here's I what's missing, I think, is collective culture moments that we share. That's what's gone away. That's why the NFL is so important and so great. That's why you should be watching football with Brian and I, Alex. Yeah, let's go watch football. I'm going to watch Monster Trucks. Because see how tall Alex is. I still don't know how tall Alex is. There's nothing better than watching a f- football game at a bar. It's the best thing ever. Oh, do you know what's great? Watching a football game at a bar outside. That's what you can do in Miami. I'll come watch the Miami Heat with you guys. If we all fly to Florida and record one there, I'll just I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, let's do it. That's a basketball team, Alex. Yes, uh, I know. I like basketball. I just I don't like football. Football was a sports created by advertising people, I think. How do we create a sport around advertising placement? That's where you I mean, I think that's a, the simple knock on it, but it's actually a, the most glorious and complex and most strategic of sports. I'm sure it's if great. You, if you just took the time to, to, I, I mean, to I have open other your sports mind. that I like. I like rugby better. I like soccer. I'm Nobody cares, but it's one. not a thing. It's not a cultural it's, thing, it's, rugby. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a cultural thing. No, it's great. I love it. It's fun to watch, but it's like it's not part of how we live here in God. America. Yeah. God, you, you used to be Canadian. Anyway, we're digressing, Brian. Yes, this is a big <laughs> this is a big digression. I, actually on the topic of optimism and Miami, 
I think of Miami as, it's very interesting to, to spend a lot of time here versus in New York in that I love New York. I've lived in New York for 20 something years, but Miami is very optimistic place and it is very different. The vibe, everything about it than New York, that the amount of building that goes on here is remarkable. There are all these viral videos that show you over time, Brickle from 2007, 2015, and then today. And it has just completely changed as one for other areas down here. You don't have that in New York. In some ways, it's just because geographically, there isn't a lot of space to We have it at Gowanus in Brooklyn. Gowanus, yes, yes. We can now kayak down the Gowanus Canal. Would you say Miami Miami is, is different to the rest of Florida, for the folks who don't know? I think so. I mean, just because it's a far more multicultural place and, you know, most of the people in Miami are bilingual or multilingual. It's a very Latin city. And so it's just, it's different. I understand why people, I do think it's going to be a consequential city for America. Complaining is a sport in New York, Brian. It's part of living here. It was designed for complaining. (laughs) The whole thing is about complaining. It's the culture of New York. In New York, people complain about walking here, right? Hey. (laughs) Complaining is a virtue of New York. That's part of what makes it great. It's, It's like Paris. It's become a European city. I don't know what you're saying, right? It's like there's optimism in the negativity. Is there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody. No, I'm li- not against New York. I'm very pro New York. I'm very, you know, I love. I you love do it. this every uh, every year. It's like I can set my watch to it. You go to Miami, and you're like, oh my god, it's so great here. People are optimistic. They speak multiple languages. I run on the beach. I can barbecue. Blah blah blah. It's great. And then at at about March, you're like, oh my god, get me out of here. I'm going to kill myself. That's <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> And now Brian's back in Miami talking about how his crypto has gone up. My crypto is ripping. Solana, I have no idea. Can someone explain what Solana Brian, is? is All that I a, know is it's up massively. I, is that a tribal <laughs> tattoo on your neck and you're getting ripped? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very pro crypto again. It's time to start writing about Web3. <laughs> wow. Strong beliefs, loosely held. Well, if we if we don't have the balancing force of Brian being the reasonable one here, I think this is this is going to start turning into uh, the <laughs> exactly, all in the all in podcast really quick. We're all going to get red pilled overnight. Can I add something on on uh, all in very quickly? I went to this will sound very strange. All over the there's, place. A hot, yeah. there's a hot tub in our building because it's like that's Miami, and there was a guy in it. And I usually don't like another person coming in the hot tub, but he was watching the All In podcast. I don't know if that's a sign of Miami. That's a sign of All In podcast or what? Watching it, watching makes it in a hot worse. tub. It just watching just I don't know that detail makes it like clinically problematic. I feel. <laughs> I, I feel like we need to get in and out of this optimism thing. And the one thing that I would offer is something that I see perhaps that you don't see as much. Although I think your wife is probably about the same age as my oldest daughter, Alex. No, maybe may a little a little older. No. <laughs> no, but... but. <laughs> Live your life how you want to, Alex. I know. God, I didn't expect to be shamed here. For the the record, she's... I didn't know that Alex had a child bride. I don't even know how tall he is. (laughs) For the record, she's much older than your oldest daughter, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I see something a little bit different because I have a 28-year-old and a a 23-year-old and a 19-year-old. And I see them 
facing the world of adulthood in the in the context of everything that's going on in the world and it's almost like when i was young it wasn't like we thought about as much about what kind of life we were going to create for ourselves or what we were going to do we just wanted to kind of go out find a job where we could make a little bit of money where we could you know grow our careers where we could kind of set down a path and then you know unfold the next chapters of our of our lives and i find for my kids right now they're sort of like trying to understand like what does the world have to offer them what kind of like adult life do they want to live and maybe it's because there's so many more options and maybe it's because they can't contemplate a work life that doesn't feel like it's kind of an extension of who they are and really rewarding. But like, they're not just like blindly moving into the work world saying, I know what I want. I'm going to go get it. It's like, what do, what do I want to do on this planet? And part of that is uncertainty, you know, with where the world's at and p- politics and climate and all that. But I think it's a really uncertain time to be in your early 20s and thinking about what the world has to offer you. And so to me, if I was to say, I think there's a, there's a, there's a lot of pessimism with young people, particularly, you know, Gen Zers. I get it. If you put yourself in their shoes, even let's say, take away all the environmental stuff and, you know, fascism and all that type of thing, all the type of stuff. All that stuff. All that, all that fascist stuff. All the fascist shit. And you said you wanted to pick a career. What will you even do? There's nothing that feels stable. Like I don't even know, as a kid now, trying to make decisions for you know five, ten years down the line, it, it used to be simpler to pick a track and say like, yeah, that's, that, that feels pretty stable. But every single profession feels like it's going to be upended. You can't even say I want to work in advertising. No, I mean, who would say that anyway? That sounds like... But they would have said that before because those were glorious careers. Well, or become a lawyer or you know, even become an engineer. And while these careers are not going to go away, they're going to look really different and it's, it's very unclear. See, I, I wouldn't know what to pick. I don't know what sounds like a great career today. Yeah, I think therapist, yeah. electrician. I would go into therapy. I think, ther- I think actually therapists are going to get pretty disrupted by AI too. You know, one of the, actually an interesting product, I put this in our, our text. I decided this year I, I was going to do, I guess it's like a diary. I like have a little document on my phone, which I write just what I'm thinking about. I uh, thought you did that yeah. last year. Yeah, last year. Well, whatever, I'm still in last year. And I fed it into Google's notebook LM thing. And I started asking questions about myself to it. And it was like kind of like therapy because it had all my thoughts from the year. So I think therapists are also screwed. Well, that's great. I mean, although I think a human connection is probably important, something that people are going to pay yeah, for. Yeah, true. I mean, you know, my wife's a therapist. But so you don't think the AI therapists are going to be able to be good enough? For, oh, most? For, for a lot of little things, I think there will be comfort in AI therapy. I mean, Troy and I had that mini episode where I talked about having a conversation with ChatGPT while I was stuck in the car rather than listening to a podcast. And while, you know, I don't think the AI is my friend, I felt it held the time pretty well differently to just having doing something passive. So we're close to something and there's definitely going to be some weird personal relationships with AI. Like, I think the movie Her is pretty prescient, you know? I've been talking to folks doing really interesting work on that and then I think we should maybe redirect the podcast into 
back into the topics, but on optimism, people working with AI for intake, both medical, but specifically therapy. So when you choose a therapist, a lot of people will bounce off because there's not a right match with the therapist. But traditionally, you spend a lot of time having these one hour session or half hour session trying to meet clients, you know, et cetera, and try to find a match. And it, it's very hard to do that. Their idea is to try to build all that intake with AI and improve kind of the, the strike rate with a match, you know, by 80% or something like that. So that type of stuff is going to, I think, really, really change things. We're going to start seeing things in, in 2024 around medical and mental health. That is kind of that gap between not getting any care and getting the right care that should be kind of shrunk. And that, that I think would be really, really powerful because there's a lot of waste there and a lot of people just ending up saying, oh, fuck, I don't know who to call. I don't know what to do. I'm, I keep meeting people that I don't like. And so AI is going to make a lot of kind of positive mm-hmm. change there, I think. I think healthcare in general is, is going to be a 2024 story. We're going to see yeah. some crazy stuff. Okay, so you think that, I mean, you're sort of prognostication for next year is that the AI gold rush sort of continues. It seems like Silicon Valley has its, broadly speaking, has its mojo back. You know, it's back to oh my like God. optimistic, building the future and stuff. Because a couple of years ago, it was like mired with, you know, Wired had the, the Zuckerberg all bruised up on its cover. And there was the idea of, oh no, you got to go back for the holidays and answer for why you are screwing up democracy and stuff like this. I feel like the page has sort of been turned on that. And I don't think it's coincidental that Silicon Valley has basically divorced the news industry. And they've just been like, we can't, we're just going to move on to the next thing. People feel a lot better. People are so happy that the conversation isn't around crypto because people are feeling pretty icky about that. And, and it was just like making everyone look like douchebags. People are surprisingly happy to see Google's dominance kind of affected. Because they, you know, Google started looking like more of a negative force, you know. Really. How do they feel about Meta? Because Meta is absolutely crushing it. Massive shift around Meta. Like, massive shift. Like, Meta, this is a subset of people, right? So I don't want to say this is the global perspective, but the shift around Meta with the launch of Threads, with the whole kind of reorganization of the company without putting the Metaverse forward as much as they did, and just like... Microsoft and Meta are real winners this year in just a whole perspective shift on them. It's so crazy. Look at Instagram. Okay, Alex, I know that you were the hater-in-chief of Meta, typically in, in our history of this podcast. And you felt like they created a kind of class of employee that just knew how to kind of optimize and not create. But if you look at what they did, TikTok put Instagram up against the wall and challenged a kind of photocentric social media model and they dual-moded the thing and made video and the TikTok-like experience run parallel to photos. And I will tell you, on any given day, that experience is as good or in many cases better than TikTok. TikTok has... The algorithm and the content flow is now fully in place. Instagram is an absolute juggernaut. Meta is proving that they're the best at algorithms because even TikToks is being affected now. People are starting to game it and it's starting to become a mess. Instagram's better than TikTok on, you know, four days out of seven. Absolutely. It, and I think, yeah, I think Mosseri, you know, the head of product at Instagram is great, but it really took a pretty dramatic downturn for them to start paying attention. And even from what I'm hearing, change the way they work, right? This huge, like, just optimize, 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 no consideration for 
what's happening outside of gr growth. I think that phenomenon is kind of has been pulled out of Facebook a little bit and it's turned it into a better company. And I but, think but, Brian, I would say that this is an underreported story in that generally speaking, when social networks face an existential threat of a rising competitor, they fail and they wither. And Instagram faced that threat from TikTok, fended it off, and incorporated it into the product in a successful way. And that's an amazing, that's an mm. amazing achievement. Amazing. Managed to change a, I mean, at the least mode. marginally, the, the mode and also the perspective people have in the company. You know, talking to folks here, I think people are nearly more interested in working for Meta now than Google. They definitely are excited about working for, for the open AIs of the world. But you see Google's brand has really diminished while Meta's brand has really... I uh, hate to say it. Huge credit to Zuckerberg, and it's a founder culture that largely enabled them to do it. Yeah, but also this is a different era. So I mean, this is not Friendster or MySpace. I mean, the scale, the scale that Instagram and and Meta overall was at when they faced these challenges is just far different than any companies have faced. And just the we all understand now the power of these network effects and this distribution lock-in. So. Is it that surprising? I mean, it, they had a lot of advantages that previous social networks and social platforms didn't have. I mean, it was theirs to lose, but they didn't. And we've seen companies fuck it up at this stage, right? I mean, I think Google's in a position where they're being faced with increased competition and they have all that scale. And I'm not sure I, I see their path forward quite as clearly. But executing around that, especially in a big company with a very specific culture, isn't that easy. I think they did some some cuts. They shrunk the team down. They they did a lot of changes. That stuff doesn't always work. You know, you can have all the scale you want, but changing your whole product mentality, launching new product, changing kind of the behaviors of somebody. Th that scale, like on Instagram, is actually something that can slow you down because they had to change that whole mode from just photo to photo and video to a lot of video. And Instagram is, remains a mess, but everybody uses it. People are generally happy with it. And it's, it's definitely pulling its weight around TikTok, which didn't have the pressure of changing everybody's behavior on the platform, which is usually where things fail, right? Oh, everybody shifted to video. Now we have to switch this mode from photos to video. That's really hard. It's really hard. And, and so they did it. Yeah. It's something that's hugely problematic, but yes. Some hugely problematic, but yeah. kudos. Well, I want to move on to, I think this is going to be the year of like litigation and regulation in some ways. And, and, 100%. and if I were to make my prognostication, there's going to be running battles on so many fronts and so many different jurisdictions with so many different acronyms as governments and societies try to rein in quote unquote big tech. And this provides publishers, I would say, an opportunity because they have leverage and that they might not have the biggest businesses, the best businesses, but they do have the ear of powerful people because of their position. And we saw over the break that New York Times has decided to go after OpenAI and Microsoft and file a lawsuit against them for copyright infringement. None of us are lawyers here, but this is a podcast, so we can delve into it. This is going to be one of several challenges. Now, what I, what I wonder is, is whether this is a negotiating ploy at the end of the day. You need to have leverage. You can threaten lawsuits. It's always hanging out there, but until you go, go through with it. I wonder what the bid-ask look like, Brian. 
What, you mean for like how much money they wanted? Like what? Like a hundred million a year? Okay, More? so I mean, it's it's a obviously a new complex chapter in copyright, right? You know, it's not as clear cut as sampling or fair use and anywhere in between. We have a model that's trained on a bunch of information that includes facts and news, which you can't really aren't really protected by copyright. That stuff isn't stored and referenced. That stuff trains a model that then, you know, answers, uses statistical analysis to answer your question. And so what comes out is very different than what was used to train it. Although once it gets to facts and specific recommendations, you can kind of do a gotcha. You can say, look, this is coming from something that it absorbed that was part of the work that we created. So I think it's, it's going to be really complicated, but I was just wondering, so I think the New York Times in 22 did a billion and a half dollars of sub revenue and about 500 million in, in advertising. I wonder whether they said to OpenAI, yeah, you can train on our corpus of work. It's a hundred million a year. It's 5% of revenue against a hundred billion dollar valuation on OpenAI. It might seem like a small amount of money, but like what happens after you do the deal with New York Times? Who else gets in line? Right. And, and is it, was well, it a hundred million? Was it in line? Yeah. Lots of people are in line, right? I mean, I'm sure that Barry is in line. I'm sure that Robert Thompson, the News Corp, they're in line. I mean, we've yeah. seen deals. Axel Springer has cut a deal. AP has cut a deal. More deals are Apple is signing deals with everyone right now. Their play is likely to start pushing, you know, the nice version of AI, which is pays the creators and probably runs on hardware. So you know, it's it's still kind of privacy first and all that stuff. So that's going to be their play. But I think that the biggest issue I have as a company that's looking into AI, so let me give you an example, right? AI is, is fun, the generative stuff is fun, and you can use it to help you write an email or write information or, or facts for an article. Wedding vows, it's good for wedding vows. Wedding vows, exactly. <laughs> I think that when you start looking at it at a larger scale within a professional setting, then you start really thinking about the IP and, and copyright issues that could arise from it. So Midjourney just came out with version 6, which is incredible. I mean, it creates photorealistic images. You can pretty much get it to create anything you want, including you know characters from The Simpsons or celebrities or whatever. But the risk there is that if your generated images, for some reason, break some sort of copyright, then you're at fault. And at times, it's because it's all mushed together, you don't know if you're breaking any copyright. As a small studio, it would be great to be able to use generative AI to create a lot of the stuff that is very time-consuming but not particularly critical to the game, like you know a lot of skies, little posters that exist in the world, a tire or some sort of packaging that you have just like sitting in a corner somewhere. That stuff you know, would take somebody two or three hours, but you could ge generate it quickly with AI and keep a pretty small team generating a lot of content. What you don't want to do is slip into your game some sort of copyright infringement that comes down the line, right? Like waterfalls down to your little studio, and all of a sudden you're getting sued for this stuff. So, and I know of a lot of companies that don't allow AI use in the company at all because everybody's holding off until this copyright stuff is resolved. Mm. So we're not yeah. really going to see any of this like pick up until that's resolved. And nobody that I talk to knows which way it's going to go. It could go either way. You know? Yeah, I, I think what's interesting to me is 
a lot of technology developments when it comes to the use of content because technology companies and platforms do not like to create content themselves. That's messy, costs money, blah, blah, blah. It's plausible deniability. That is key. I mean, it's what holds up the entire ad tech industrial complex. It's just being having plausible deniability. And these models mix, mix things to the point where it provides the cover of plausible deniability, right? I mean, the content comes from somewhere. It does not, it is not dreamed up out of, but when you mix it all up in a stew, eh, who's to say? Yeah. And it's, it's also like you keep seeing like little bits of, of somebody does some detective work and notices that the corner, that that wave in the corner of that generated image is exactly the same wave as the one in their art, you know? And, and, And it's so obvious that you go, that's, nobody wants to be caught with that. You know? Yeah, but everyone, the thing is, like, it's, you know, I forget who pointed it out, was the New York Times engages in a very handcrafted version of this on a near daily basis. I mean, publications always sure. rewrite, particularly right, big but it's publications. <laughs> it gives people's jobs. The New York Times is, is notorious for taking stories from local publications or their foreign correspondents just read the publications or likely have someone on staff read the local publications wow. and then re-report the story. Sure, but, um, when, you're, but when you're a regulator or court, and you see somebody taking people's jobs away from their office in Silicon Valley, you know, I think you're less likely to root for them rather than somebody who says, well, we hired 30 interns to do this stuff. (laughs) At least 30 interns have a job, you know? It's when machines can do it at scale that it demands a new kind of interpretation. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. How would you like it to work out? I'm curious. Like Alex, for example, you are both an intense user of AI and you are uh, a creator. How how do you want this to play out? I think what I would love, and I have no idea how you would make it work, but as a builder, I would love to be able to have access to generative AI that pays its creators for for the stuff that they put into the the LLM so that, that there is some sort of system that tracks and maintains licensing rights and the more the stuff i generate like uses some of their stuff the more i pay and it would be probably you know sense but it would add up and the ability to know that there is a way to generate content that is fully licensed is going to be really powerful i think a lot of the stock photo companies are doing that now that's controversial in itself because when people put up their stock photos they didn't think that you know they would become generated but like some of the larger stock photography which are in real trouble because of that are pivoting into licensed AI. There is subsets of like artistic, you know, databases that are, have been licensed, but it's not at, at the scale that we need yet. And then as a creator, you know, I would like to be able to decide what goes in there. And if I have a style or anything specific that I want to license, I could put some stuff up there. You know, photographers used to do that with their B-roll. They would go somewhere and shoot stuff, and then they would have 500 photos of fields and rivers and people walking down markets and they would put those on iStock photo or something, you know, and make a, a few bucks off that. I think that's the model that people are what I want to see. Is there any difference, Alex, between me? Let's say that you have a body of work that I admire and I call an illustrator and I wanna I wanna have something made. And I said, just do it, you know, that hatch style that Alex uses. Would you mind doing something in the spirit of that? You know, add your own twist to it, but do something like Alex would have done versus just you know, a prompt that says, give me an image of a robot in the style of Alex Schleifer. 
Yeah, I think there's a difference. I I was just reading uh, Rick Rubin. What's book. the difference? Well, if if you believe Rick Rubin, you'd say that an artist copying an, an other artist creates something entirely new, and that's totally acceptable. And it's a great way of making art move forward. The Beatles copied American music and created something completely new, but they were trying to copy something else when they started. And I think that you know there's a fair amount of plagiarism that happens. But in the style of by another human being, I think might not always be the greatest thing to do, but at least it's, you know, it feeds through somebody and there's effort attached to it. I think what happens when you just have a machine do it is that it devalues the entire thing because also the massive content that you can create. And that means that my body of work can be created to create new pieces of work that look like mine but where I don't get anything. It's a little bit like, if you think that art is kind of an extension of the person, it's a bit like using somebody's likeness, right? You know, and that's a little clearer cut, right? If you look at it like that. But as an artist, that's what you do. That's what you put out into the world. It's a bit like using your voice and thoughts to create a new podcast, right? Right? Is that okay? That'd be cool. Well, sure. Yeah. Just like a full, like, right-wing manosphere <laughs> <laughs> selling pills. <laughs> I think the danger is that this becomes like another insider's game. I'm not super worried about News Corp or the New York Times wetting their respective beaks. They're politically connected and they, they've got lots of lawyers and stuff. But I think for the individual, when we talk about quote unquote creators and just smaller businesses, like they'll be locked out. You know, just the same as these deals that happen in Australia and that, you know, the Canada and the News Bargaining Code. It becomes an insider's game. It rewards disproportionately those who have the ear of regulators and politicians. That's just how these systems but work. But optimistically, though, if, if those battles kind of also create a way for people to opt out of being sucked into the LLM, which you can kind of do today, right? Doesn't that mean it also opens up a space for smaller creators to keep that stuff tucked away? Right, and you're the only one. If you oh, know, yeah. if you are, you want to subscribe, you want to do a Patreon, you want to do whatever, and you don't have to fight that fight where you just, you know, if you're not on Google, right? If you, if you're not fighting with free content on on the SEO battlefield, then you're you're out of the picture, right? Yeah. Maybe I, that's, that's why I cannot see how the open web survives this. I don't see it. I don't see how it works. Because when you say the open web, you say the search powered open web, right? The Google search. If you're going to, at least my conception of the open web, if you're going to put everything behind a paywall and it's all going to be permissioned, you're going to break the open web. The open web, does, it, becomes, it becomes like Phoenix. It's all cul-de-sacs. And it's probably a better alternative to, first of all, I think it's ridiculous the, the entire Silicon Valley approach of asking for permission later. I mean, this is... Like, how naive are we supposed to be? It's like, go out and take all this shit and then ask for well, permission. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang no, on. I disagree with that. I disagree with that, too, because, A, it's worked for 20 years. How naive How naive was Google of doing that? No, 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 I'm talking about the LLMs. Like, so, so this, oh, in this training case specifically? on all this data... Yeah, training on all of this data, and then it's like, oh, well, you can opt out. Why is it always opt out? Why do, you, why do technology companies feel, and this is the part that I sort of get, like, I don't understand why rules and regulations don't seem to apply when quote-unquote disruption is waved around. And, and it's just a regular, and I think that is going to be a real issue when this stuff gets into the regulatory realm, is because there is a clear track record 
of asking for permission later, creating facts on the ground. And nobody asked the New York Times or anyone else, me personally, that our content could be sucked into some LLM. Nobody asked for permission. Nobody. Because I didn't get it. Well, because think, what Sam Altman wants to be the most powerful trillionaire in, ever in the world. I mean, I don't want to get into people's uh, motivations. What I'm saying is that the excuse that's being bandied around is that this is the same as search. We're just grabbing your stuff. We're just spidering the web, and it's the same as search, man. It's the same as the autocomplete on search, which I don't think is right. But I think that's the excuse that's being bandied around. But this is fair use. Yeah. Okay. I want to just build on your point, Brian, just a bit more explicitly that in some ways, the search results page and Google in the open web is highly democratic. Like you can employ better, you know, search engine optimization than someone else. You all, for the most part, live by a set of rules, small companies, big companies, everybody in between. And the economic equation is you're rewarded with a click that you can monetize however you monetize. You sell stuff, you sell subscriptions, you sell advertising. And the risk of this new thing where it's all processed you know, at the end of a query and brought back to you is a handful of companies will be paid for that and everybody else will just be absorbed. And there will be no quid pro quo for participating in that system. Yeah, the Times will get a deal and Reuters will get a deal and, you know, Axel Springer will get a deal. But like, you won't get a deal, Brian. No one's doing a deal with you. Yeah. But Benedict Evans uh, actually wrote something good about this. He said, you're still building what you claim will be a trillion dollar business on other people's work. Equally saying that, quote, people learn like this too might perhaps be true in principle, but a difference in scale can be itself be a difference in principle. Yeah, I think this is going to be a very messy year for working this out. Now, Adam Ryan, who, who runs this, this company, Workweek, he, he had a, I like the framing. I don't think it's totally works. But I'd love to hear your take on it. Was that whether you know this lawsuit could be LLM's Napster moment in some ways, and that you can play it out, and if uh, court were to rule very broadly, like you can tie this stuff up in courts and stuff like that. But, you know, that's really problematic if anyone building an LLM has to compensate those who hold copyrights on the content in which that LLM has been trained off. That's expensive. Yeah, having discussed this with a couple of people, it is not totally unlikely that a ruling could come down that makes the chat GPT-4 illegal to run right? Like where they have to take it down. You know, that would be yeah. crazy. That the valuation of that company would plummet if that happened, right? Because I, I think you can find reasons on both sides as to why this is fair use or not fair use. It's not, it's not as clear cut. And so that the fact that this might go down to a judge somewhere, and it might take a while to play out, but it's a huge risk in these companies. It's the biggest risk. And so imagine that. I listened to this podcast over the break with Guillaume Verdone. The Beth Jesus, Jesus, I guess it is. Oh, guy, that guy who has extropic, and he's building something I don't, I don't even understand. <laughs> I'll fully admit that. All these AI names are so interesting. They all sound so pretentious. Very, very intelligent guy from everything I did understand, and he's the founder of the EAC movement. If it's a movement, and to me, it's it, it is 
I guess I'm trying to be optimistic, but look, it's political posturing, right? And we always think political posturing is going into black and white. It's like, you're either with us or against us. And it's like, well, can I be something somewhere in between? And this is like, we're either for progress or you want to go into the dark ages and you, you want to go live off the land. And I can kind of understand that sort of framing, but then, you know, and I think that's why people get sucked into libertarianism and, and then usually people become adults and they leave that behind. But I do, I, I do wonder how effective that is going to be when dealing with these very thorny issues, because I think there's a question of, can you stop this? Because I, I, Let's just say GPT-4 is like banned. Like, what are you going to have? Like black market GPT-4s? You're just going to go and get it somewhere else? And, and then he brings up a good point is, do you really want, let's just say this stuff is as powerful as well. Do you really want it in the hands of a handful of companies or do you want it widely available? And then like even further than that, would you want, let's say, you know, the quote unquote, the government actually developed AI and had a monopoly on the technology. Is that a good outcome? I don't know. I mean, I think the problem with people who are really intelligent sometimes is that they think they're better at everything than anyone else. So what you hear a lot from these people is that I, I, don't, don't, I don't know what you mean. Well, <laughs> don't you know? Don't trust the government. Don't trust these companies. Don't trust anyone. Trust my point of view because I know better and I've thought about this for longer. Look, there is already black market LLMs. There's a lot of stuff that you can't do on Midjourney or, or Dali that you can go and fish out somewhere and, and generate porn, right? Like people are doing deep fakes with this stuff all the time, even though it's technically not allowed by the key companies. I think it depends if you're also thinking in a short term or long term. In the short term, the only companies that will have the compute to generate these large, large, large models are going to be really well-funded companies. So I don't know if we'll be finding black market LLMs that are as powerful as ChatGPT just because it costs so much to render. Well, just to cut to the chase here, because my, my prediction on this, I think he's right, Alex. It's like his point is you either have abundance or you have scarcity. When you have scarcity, people fight over resources that humans have only ever been, you know, lived in the pursuit of better tools and better technology. And this is just part of our inevitable evolutionary process. Yeah, but I call bullshit. And, I call bullshit. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, th I, that's not saying don't regulate anything. That's saying... Well, it is saying don't regulate anything. That's exactly what they're saying. Troy's going to get the implant. That's, what I, that's my conclusion. <laughs> I'm not denying that this change is coming and there's going to be an age of abundance. And if this all pans out, it could be great for everyone. It, it's how quickly... Do we shift as a society? And we're thinking that there's there's an existential threat if we slow this down. Dude, there's an existential threat if we it disrupts society so much that it creates create some societal collapse, if we destroy a bunch of jobs, if okay, we okay. devalue right. the, you know, just, just slow down a little bit, okay? Because we're we're not talking about destruction. Didn't we're talking about EAC. whether GPT four gets shut off because of copyright law. And my prediction, I'll make it here, is that that's not going to happen, that we're going to work through these things, that the kind of power and availability and inevitability of this technology will prevail. And there'll be some little bumps on the road and media will be forever changed. And the structure or the, the mental model that we have today about how you know, the value of media is going to change. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I think that's right. 
Because, because this is a technology that it doesn't threaten powerful people. It makes powerful people more powerful, right? The problem of crypto beyond the tech and beyond, beyond all the bullshit of it was that they were like saying, we're going to replace the US dollar. <laughs> it's like, what? Do you like, yeah, okay, the US government's going to totally go along with that considering like that's like the biggest, in addition to the military, the biggest source of power. I don't think it doesn't, I, I think it threatens a lot of powerful people because it threatens so many white collar jobs. So I think it, there's a threat there. Also, just to be clear, I didn't say it was likely that ChatGPT4 would be shut down. I think it is interesting that there's a non-zero chance that that could be a ruling somewhere, right? It is. It remains sure. a very high risk. But I do think AI threatens powerful people. There's huge corporation entirely built on the fact that you need to hire a bunch of white collar worker to get your taxes done or get legal support or all these things. And that could all be upended. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. So one final thing is OpenAI is expecting $5 billion in revenue this year. They did $1.6 billion, I guess, in 2023, which is big, but it's not like massive. Is this the year a lot of this becomes real as far as, you know, producing real economic value? Because right now it's all circular. It's round tripping. It's a bunch of money the way I understand it, a bunch of money is going from places like Microsoft to these companies to then send the money back to Microsoft for compute. Like, okay, great. NVIDIA is doing really well. The people picks and shovels and stuff like this. But are we seeing this create, is this the year we start to see AI in general start to create massive amounts of economic value? I don't necessarily see it. Maybe it's happening without me understanding it. No, I don't think the... I think the AI companies, it still costs too much money to run. And every query still costs so much money that nobody's really making money right now on this. And actually, they're, they're just trying to gain as much market share as quickly as possible because the risk, you know, outside of the legal risk, is that the OS companies just start integrating this stuff straight into the OS. So Microsoft, you know, with, with Windows has open AI, but once, you know, Siri is just connected to an LLM, and it's a single button on the phone, that takes a huge part of the market share away. And so, so what everybody's going to be doing this year is pump a lot of money to make sure that they become kind of the mode for most people. Maybe I, I didn't understand the question, but it feels to me like the stack exists, right? The, the AI stack from chips to LLMs to APIs, and that we're going to see a massive amount of application layer innovation this year. And... I don't think that there's a place where you won't see that applied. Like, you know, whether it's a language training program or a call center queue or onboarding oh, sure. for mental health or tools that help you make better images or music. I mean, there's n nowhere will be untouched. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, but is it like a 10 to 15%? And, and that's massive in a lot of these areas. I think we'll see. I think maybe I didn't understand how you framed the question. Companies like OpenAI, you know, the ones that actually like generate and compute this stuff, I'm not sure, I think they'll still be burning through cash. Outside of that, there will be a lot of optimization and cost saving that happens via kind of APIs to these AIs, right? Like call centers, for example, should be massively reduced. Very okay. Quickly. I guess my point is like, we're still on the should, will. Is this the year this moves into? 
Here is the massive amount of change and economic value that's been created by these technologies that we've spent all this time wondering whether they're going to eliminate humankind and they can't like. Back to my point, I think that right now the tools that we have at scale, there's still too much like risk in IP or risk in the, the LLM, like responding something completely fucking stupid, right? For it to get the mass adoption that we need. Like companies are still pretty scared to do that. That makes sense. It's all tied in together. I mean, in some ways, that's why they went consumer first. Why are all these mid journeys and stuff like that? They're consumer tools, all of them. You know, the only thing you need is like for some sort of Ford AI rep to respond like, hey, you should probably buy a Toyota. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, you know, nobody wants to be caught like that. So I think there's a lot of the safe, we're going to have to see a lot of like, A, like completely custom LLMs that are built around custom databases for the company, more security so that the LLM doesn't respond to anything crazy. And third, like some figuring out of how the IP laws are going to start panning out for people to put in. Mm-hmm. It's coming for your, your hot tub, Brent. It's exactly. coming soon to, to your hot With tub. With that, I don't think 2024 being like the landmark year for this stuff. I think it's going to take another year to, to really pick up. Are we moving into predictions now? Yeah. Well, you could do like Twitter being worth a third of what it was, but we can move into predictions. But what's, oh, the, uh, what's the upshot there? What, what do we want to talk about that hasn't been endlessly debated? Well, I think, Troy, in the beginning of the year, you were saying that you believed in Elon and just watch. And I said, everything I see from his strategy looks like he doesn't know what he's doing when he's building software. And it all came true. There we go. Well, I don't think it's a software problem. In fact, he's released more functionality than the previous administration with a quarter wow. of the people. Brian's the only it's not a Twitter software problem. It's a business problem, it seems. Well, if he has a business plan, it's a it's personality like problem, and it's a moderation <laughs> problem, and it's a positioning problem. It's not a software problem. Well, I think it's definitely the, the products, the, the algorithms be changed in a way where like, it's just not as interesting to use the product anymore. So it's an algorithm problem. If I'm so, I got to tell you, I'm sick of Elon. I, I just can't keep hearing about it. What Elon. did it take, Troy? I just, what was it? What was the final straw? It's just over. The Twitter space with the Nazis? <laughs> there was that. I think when he, <laughs> you know, maybe we should have seen it when he called the guy that saved. I don't even know if that happened. I'm just assuming it did. Sorry, Elon. When he didn't. called the guy that saved a bunch <laughs> of kids from drowning, he called him a pedo. That should have been kind of a sign. <laughs> Maybe things were taking a turn. I remember the time I was like, well, maybe he's got a point. Like, he wouldn't say it if he didn't have a point. <laughs> I know. He seems smart in other ways. Maybe he wouldn't. But yeah. Yeah. I listened to a podcast with Jeff Bezos and Lex Friedman. And Lex Friedman asked him his thoughts on Elon Musk because they're, you know, they're parallel with the space and stuff like this. And he's pretty diplomatic about it. He's like, I don't know him well. He's like, I know, you know, there's usually a difference between public personas and, and how they are in private. Because I do know that there's, Zero percent chance he could be as successful as he has been if he's not really good at running. So, so prediction: What do you think happens to Twitter in twenty twenty four? I think Linda Yaccarina's in a different job. That's my prediction. She's been like, I mean, holding on, right? Just like it's kind of impressive. I'll make a prediction just for fun. He puts it in a public trust and lets someone else run. That's one. Or he decides that it's just too much of a headache and passes it on to someone else. Like uh, a public trust, you mean like some sort of variation on what these AI companies are doing, which I find re- actually fairly interesting and it doesn't get enough focus, like in that they're 
you know, I, we obviously saw with OpenAI. What if it had enough money to be cash flow positive where, you know, he endowed it or somehow, some way there was a mechanism for it to survive financially and, you know, he put an administrative head on it and just let it run? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't quite understand how the loan repayments work and stuff like that, but that could be that could be a way to do it. And I, I think it's an addiction for him, so it's hard to understand how people are going to respond to that. Did you see the guys who posted what the logged out experience on Twitter is today? So if you just go on Twitter, like as a new user or something, and literally the first like eighty posts or something were people talking about how great Tesla was doing, people bigging up Elon, people like talking about Starling, people talking about the rocket launch. And it was essentially the entire thing was an Elon feed. And it's probably going to be hard to give that up, you know, honestly. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not big into resolutions, but I think one that I've made and that so far I'm, I'm keeping to is I try to keep my time on X to a bare minimum. I feel like I still need to with the information hose that it is, but I've come around to... I don't know. I think it suits you. I feel like you need no. to, the same way you need that extra menthol cigarette, Brian. No, this is, it's too much. <laughs> There's, yeah, the, the Get on threads, buddy. is a mistake. Threads I don't good. think I need any of that stuff. Honestly, I kind of want less of all of it. I'm like trapped in... It'll make like, you happier. too much information. I don't read books anymore. I ordered some new tropics off of Instagram because I'm like, <laughs> I don't think I can concentrate for like 15 minutes anymore. And I don't think I'm alone. I don't know what 24 is bringing, but you're back in Miami, your crypto is doing well, and you ordered new tropics. It's like, it's, this off is Instagram. turning into the fucking Huberman podcast. <laughs> what the fuck's happening? <laughs> I don't know. You, it's called like Thesis. They made a very compelling case. I'm going to uh, give it a try. Oh, yeah. Okay. Caffeine pills. But I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think there's a lot of great engagement on Twitter anymore. I mean, you definitely don't get any like subscriptions to the newsletter from there. You just get a fix when you want to make fun of someone or when Troy and I made you feel bad and then you go back and, you know. So we'll leave that there. Maybe it was something we can revisit this year. Okay. So last year's predictions, I had said Google would have a tough year. Totally right. Troy had talked about how Twitter was going to be great. Totally wrong. That's that's not that's not what it says in the document here. <laughs> and I think it talked about the dimin- diminished value of media, which was, I guess, slight wow. prescient. That's 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 evergreen. Yeah, you could say that every, every year since 1972, and then you'd be right. All right, I suck. What what did Alex say? I don't know. You know, I listened to last year's episode. I don't think you 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 gave what do you a mean? definitive. I, no, I you said, just went. Uh, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on. I said I said my predictions were that Microsoft would have a killer year, and which they oh, did. Oh, that was very true. And that Google would would suffer. We both had the Google thing that uh, Google wouldn't. Okay, be good. Great. So that was that. And Microsoft. All right. So we were right. Troy was wrong. That's awesome. Woohoo! Microsoft actually did better than I thought, and actually that whole OpenAI debacle helped them. They're in a stronger position now. On top of that, the activity. Is it debacle or debacle? De- Come here, there. Debacle. I like debacle. And then that the whole Activision thing went through. And so they're, they're kind of a powerhouse now. Even though, you know, PlayStations are selling Xboxes five to one or something, they have a, a long game. It's a really interesting company. And Google really needs the type of change that happened at Microsoft. Google's turning into Microsoft otherwise. I mean, their product lines don't make any sense. They're too dependent on search the same way Microsoft was too dependent on Office. They, they need something because it's going to be another terrible 
kind of year in decline for them, even though they're doing well, you know, you talk to people in the Valley, nobody's looking for jobs at Google right now. They still have really good chicken masala in the cafeteria. It's, I don't think it was ever that good, man. Maybe I should have invited you to Airbnb more often. I always thought that was totally overrated, the Google cafeteria. I only ate there a few times, but I was yeah. like, it's, it's still a fucking cafeteria. I like the doll. All right. It's all part of the gaslighting of millennials. <laughs> so two-thirds of us did okay at the predictions. Let's see what we're going to do for next year. All right. So what are right, you I mean, I already made my prediction. My prediction is that it's going to be the year of litigation. It's going to be, everyone's going to lawyer up. And there's going to be all kinds of battles. FTC is going to be firing on all cylinders. Europe's got its AI act. They're, they're back. They're like, okay, we know what to do with this new technology. We're going to regulate the hell out of it. Yeah. I mean, even Macron is saying, whoa, pump the brakes, guys. There's only two things we're good at, tourism and regulation. <laughs> but since, since France has a couple of AI startups, they're, they're like, wait a second, we're not into all this regulation. Which kind of goes to prove the point of you know, this sort of semi-conspiracy theory that Europe is, is so into regulating tech just because they totally lost on every single tech. I mean, I, I don't know. I think, I think Europe is into regulating everything, which is why you know, we, start, we stopped eating contaminated meat before America. So like, it's, just a thing. it's just a thing we did. We still eat contaminated meat. Oh, yeah, that's true. At least in Florida we Actually, do. yeah, in Miami. <laughs> Troy, you want to go next? What, what do you have? I was thinking that I would eat more contaminated meat in 24. Uh-huh. I guess my prediction, I'll do one. Apple introduces a mate- like a real Google competitor in the form of a chatbot. And it looks a lot like perplexity. It's the integration of a search index and an LLM. It's fast because it lives partly on the chip, on the phone. They have a lot of the other pieces to connect into that because they have maps and premium news and you know increasingly video and sports scores and i think that by leveraging their proximity to the consumer via ios and your device they step over google and they can make it free or they can make it part of the apple premium subscription they could also elect to start investing in an ad solution around it but i suspect that would come much later and through that, Google loses market share for the first time beyond certainly the little flesh wounds that Bing has caused over the years, which are minor and basically insignificant. So I think that we're finally seeing a real crack around search and it will be exploited by Apple first. Can I add to that? Because that's also in my predictions. I think that's not, mm-hmm. you can't do that. No? Okay. My, my prediction is that everybody that owns the OS will start using that advantage to push their own AI. That's Microsoft, Google, and Apple, essentially. But Microsoft has the challenge of not owning a phone, and Google has the challenge of its open system, not a, really allowing it to do whatever it wants. For example, I don't think Samsung would allow Google to just put their AI on the first button. They'll put their own Samsung AI there. So Apple is, while it's behind likely on kind of building their own LLM, they have been like quietly pushing open source stuff. I don't know if you've seen the news, open source AI stuff that shows that they've been very active. And their stuff is also going to be multimodal because they'll have access to the camera. And you can lift your camera and say, what is this? Right? And that type of thing is going to beat out any app that you have to press and open and access. And I completely agree with you. It, it will start chipping away, could be very rapidly at Google search, which is integrated into iOS, which is a major kind of like source of 
you know, traffic for them. So it's going to be really interesting if they can perform with that. And also, I think they're going to start pushing their, the same way they did with advertising, that their AI is privacy first and nice. And, you know, oh, yeah. and they've privacy for is a human right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even though, you know, they've managed to destroy the advertising businesses of all these other companies while growing their own, they're really good at that stuff. Pure coincidence. Yeah. And if these IP suits kind of like start stifling or hurting these other AI companies, like Apple will kind of keep moving slowly into a space that they can fully own. So it's going to be really interesting. I also think they're going to sell a bunch of these Vision Pros, like gangbusters. Oh my God. Is the the metaverse and crypto are going to be. I think I don't, I still don't think it's the metaverse. I think the Vision Pros is going to be just a, uh, a really cool way of having a big screen wherever you go, where you can do telepresence and stuff like that. I think it's going to. Did you order yours? No, I don't think you can order them yet. Are you going to get one? Oh, yes. I'll get one and I'll record a podcast on it. Brian, are you getting one? Can we do our podcast with goggles on? Yeah, we'll do it in the hot tub. Be great. No, I'm not going to have one. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Trey, did you put this that Web3 is not dead? Oh, God. I mean, I think I, that, that... I'm in Miami and I don't even think that. So let's do uh, Bitcoin hits 100 grand by the end of 24. And oh, you think because the ETF? Oh, I'd love that. That'd be great for me. Hundred thousand dollars. I don't know where ETH ends up. I think the the idea of decentralization is a long, long, big idea and has a you know has a lot of gas left in it. And we're starting to see some of the ideas. And this is a really good thing manifest in federated social apps. And we'll see that we're seeing that from Threads. Brian, or sorry, Alex, I know you. Yeah, you yeah. were excited about Activity Pub. Which is, Where are you talking I about? I think Vendalian? it's potentially no. the future. I, I, no, no, but I both Troy and I are involved in, in, in a Web3 company. But So they closed a the big round, right? Yeah, yeah. Like 15, 17, something like that. They're, they're going to change the way musicians make a living. This is great. You should pay attention. Medallion. I hope Brainbox is still still working on that. Brainbox is there. Troy, it's yes. interesting. Do you, do you put this federation stuff into the Web3 narrative? Is that a I, part I, of Web3? I mean, I think that the technology stack underpinning fully decentralized applications that, you know, embodied in what people would call crypto is extremely complicated, but the ideas are really important long-term to society. And I think that, that it's going to take uh, a while for them to to manifest in ways that are accessible to real people but like the idea that we're just walking away from all of those ideas that are underpin things like like ethereum in particular is i think uh, short-sighted so i i'm I not agree. saying that i think that ai and web3 go together really well in that you know one demands the establishment of you know identity and a decentralized system to support that and i think that they're going to be in in 10 years we'll be talking about web3 in a very different way yeah, I mean, we might not, all those naming conventions might go away, but I, I also think a thing that's benefiting them is that a lot of the jokers have kind of moved on, right? There's less talk of like Bordet Yacht Club and all that stuff and, and more serious people trying to yeah. use blockchain. The, the NFTs will come back, but not under the name NFT. And they already are. It's like people are talking about tokenizing. I mean, it's, isn't it crazy that we, we went from trying to pay people for work that they generated to getting free unlimited artwork generated by AI. Like I don't even understand how these two businesses coexist. Here, buy my four triangles that my code generated for $17,000 or ask an AI to generate 100 versions of those. I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. know how NFTs survive the AI revolution. 
Yeah, the collectibles bubble was one of my favorite zero interest rate phenomenons. Yeah. Well, Wonderful. Beep, beep, remember Beeple? That guy got in and uh, got yeah, out. Yeah, Beeple. Amazing. I hope he got out. Amazing. Well, he yeah. got out with like 60 million or something like that. Yeah. All right. Okay, resolutions. My, mine is to spend a bare minimum of time on X. We're going to see how long. Troy, what's I yours? Can go with that. Just to be nicer to you guys, to give you more love. Oh, God. oh really? Yeah. Let's see. More. Let's see how that pans out. Just keep giving. Okay. Yeah, me. It's to take on less and manage my time better. So I'll be on time more often. And then finally, for good product. Wait, 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 wait. So we're doing good product now. Is this a cue yeah. to, for me to do the good product? Yeah. Yeah, and then and then the, the track is going to drop right here. Right. I, I have to set it up, Ryan, if you don't mind, because I was with a friend of mine who occasionally listens to the podcast. Her name is Suzanne. She was telling me about her mom and spends a lot of time on her own. And she, I think she has you know early onset dementia. She said, I bought her this incredible gift called an aura frame. And it's been really great for her and for our family. And I was like, really? You bought her like a picture, like one of those digital picture frames? It seemed, you know, like a nothing thing. And she said, no, 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 you just got to get one. You got to get one. They're, in they're incredible. It's been, was the best thing I've ever bought for my mother. And so I just last week I was in North Carolina. I was seeing my mother and I grabbed one of those, or, this frame from a company called Aura, A-U-R-A. And I set it up and it's remarkable. And it's remarkable because, first of all, you don't really have to do anything to use it. You set it up, you put it on a network. Anybody who wants to participate can throw photos on there via their app or via email. You can email photos in. And so I set up the app. I sent notifications to everyone in our extended family. And you don't they need to receive the product, right? You can do it right online and the product gets right. shipped straight to them. So, so the, the frame is set up. It's on a wireless network. You put the app on your phone. You know, I invited everybody. Now everybody is uploading photos to my mother's frame and she couldn't be happier. Like you can see what everybody's put up inside of the app. You can like it and heart it and comment on it and all that stuff. But my mother can now run her finger on the top of this frame and every day she gets a new photo from her family and it supports video. So you can throw little videos up to her and everybody in my family's doing it and she is absolutely over the moon. It's sort of this little surprise that sits on her counter and she has a steady stream of old and new memories from her grandkids and her kids and it's pretty cool. The Aura Frame folks, good product of the week. By the way, okay. I, I don't know why it's not built into every television. You would think that that software could be just part of your Samsung or your LG TV. You'd think it's a product that you know Apple would have created or Google would have created. But you know, I think it's that it's just single purpose, and in its singularity, it's simple, and it's pretty cool for for someone like my mother who has some trouble remembering some things. Yeah, it's a good example of technology that like sort of fosters human connection versus tries to replace it. You know, because it augments. Yeah, and as Troy said, like it's very focused technology. I like like things that just do one thing well. You know, that's exactly kind of a use case that most people have been trying to do. But then you try to buy one of those little Google Home screens, and every time my dad comes to it, it, it asks if it wants to connect a fucking camera to it rather than just doing the one thing. So, really cool product. Yeah, I mean, I have the Google thing, and 
I, I don't really have it do anything other than turn my lights on and off. There was that period in the early 80s where there was a lot of mixing of things, like the alarm clock phone and the like TV and VCR. Yeah. And they always, it was always like the worst of both worlds. Big mistake. Well, this was a great way to start the year. As always. I'm going to Las Vegas next week. Oh, if man, anyone's man. going for CES, let me know. I'm excited. I'm going to be at the Aria. Speaking of, I would love to hear from our audience to see if anybody listens to this thing as one and a half, two, two and a half, or even three X speed. I was walking in San Francisco and I saw somebody jog, not headphones, just iPhone blaring out a podcast Weird. at three X which is demented. You cannot hear anything. And I was wondering if people from our audience do that. So if they could get back to us, that would be great. I can only listen to podcasts on accelerated speeds. Really? Pretty oh, much. Yeah. I like listening it to the- me nuts. No, it's too much. At least it's, one it's, and a quarter. At oh, it makes, on, me, it makes me anxious. I don't know, I like the yeah. pauses. All right. All right, guys. See you Bye. later. Happy New Year. Bye.